Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Juvenile justice systems nationwide and in North Carolina have made extraordinary improvements over the past two decades. Incarceration rates have been cut in half and juvenile arrest rates are at a historic low. However, there is still much work to be done. African-American youth who are perceived as being older than they are and are viewed by society as being less innocent are still more likely than their white peers to be subjected to harsher discipline. And this leads to more frequent interaction with the criminal justice system. And for youth involved in the criminal or juvenile justice system, recidivism rates remain unacceptably high. What efforts are being made in North Carolina to address these issues? On this evening's show, we're gonna talk about the state of juvenile justice in North Carolina. Joining us for this discussion, we have Dr. Lorraine Taylor. She is the executive director of the NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute. Also joining us is frequent guest, Dorothy Harrison Mitchell. She is a clinical law professor at NCCU School of Law and the supervising attorney for the NCCU Law Juvenile Law Clinic. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. So before we do a deep dive into the state of juvenile justice here in North Carolina, we'd like to hear from both of you about your juvenile um, organization. So Dr. Taylor, we're going to start with you. Can you share with us what is the Juvenile Justice Institute? Sure. The JJI, as we call it, is a research and policy focused institute at North Carolina Central University. Uh, we are located in the Department of Criminal Justice and we are an institute, although we operate within this particular department. Um, the institute was established back in 1999 um, by the General Assembly the original focus of the Institute was to promote the exchange of information and human resource development to help facilitate the prevention of juvenile delinquency. So that was the original focus of the Institute. I became the executive director back in 2016, um, and we are currently staffed, myself and our associate director, Dr. Jonathan Glenn. Our current work has a slightly different focus from what was originally our, our, um, our mission. Today, we're still providing information to various juvenile justice stakeholders. However, our work is mostly focused on research and policy now, rather than just providing information. Um, originally, the Institute operated back before the internet was a big thing. Um, and so there's less demand, I would say, for 
you know, pamphlets on, on different juvenile justice topics. Also consistent with the overall strategic plan of the university, we are growing our research footprint. And so we spend the majority of our time working on research projects related to juvenile justice and criminal justice more broadly. Can you share with us uh, a couple of research projects that you all are, are working on? Certainly. Um, I get very excited when I talk about some of our recent research successes. And these are largely interdisciplinary projects. And so we are lucky to work with faculty and students from within criminal justice, but from other departments um, and other universities as well. So um, one of our, our recent projects was um, what we call the Misdemeanor Justice Project. We were selected as one of seven sites around the country to participate in this three-year research project that focused on understanding the enforcement of lower level offenses, misdemeanor offenses. Um, Durham was one of the locations and NCCU was the only HBCU that was part of this, this network. Um, the project was a collaboration with several of our community partners, including the Durham Police Department and, and several other um, agencies and organizations. And the focus of that work was to examine trends in misdemeanor enforcement going back from 2010 up through 2019 or 2018, I believe. Um, and we were interested in looking at just changes in, in misdemeanor arrests, um, as well as looking at differences by race and gender. And the results of that report um, are available. And actually all of the sites that participated um, in that project produced a report. We were able to share our findings at a community release event that we actually held over in the law school. Very nice accommodations uh, back in 2019. Um, and the report was also picked up by local media. So that was pretty exciting. In terms of our findings, I always tell people you don't even need to read the report to guess what we found. So like we just talked about at the beginning, we know that overall arrests for misdemeanor offenses have declined um, pretty precipitously um, in Durham. And the decline is one story. So that's something that maps onto other national trends. Um, what we found, however, was the same old disparities that have been there where African-Americans are arrested at higher rates compared to other ethnicities. Um, I was also particularly interested in the trends by age. And so um, the data that we had included 16 and 17 year olds um, who were at that time still represented in the adult data. And we did find, again, no shocker here, um, the likelihood of being arrested for misdemeanor crimes was higher for those young adults. Again, no, no major surprises there, but um, we were able to conduct this study and combine all of these different questions into this study and to produce this report. Um, this project was done in collaboration with the John Jay College um, Criminal 
John Jay College of Criminal Justice um, up in New York. Um, and again, we had collaborators from all across the US. All right, great. And we'll have a chance to talk about what to do about these continuing disparities, but you were talking about misdemeanor arrests, and that's a good segue into hearing from Professor Harrison Mitchell about the law school's juvenile law clinic. So Professor Mitchell, always a pleasure having you on, on the show. Can you share with our audience some information about um, our juvenile law clinic? Yes, it's always a pleasure to be here um, and be a part of any discussions and to be a part and be able to talk with some really great people like Dr. Taylor, too. Um, our juvenile law clinic, um, we handle pro bono cases for children um, ages six and now to 17. Um, it used to be six to 16 or six to 15. Um, juvenile court jurisdiction, of course, is from six to 17 now. And so we provide um, pro bono legal representation for those children. Um, we receive the juvenile delinquency case appointments from the Durham County Public Defender's Office. Um, and I supervise law students in representing this um, children. And that's what I call them because that's what they are. The children who are um, involved in juvenile delinquency court. We also represent children who are facing long term suspension matters. So in Durham. Right now, we're just limited to Durham, especially with, you know, in COVID times and in which we, so we don't travel, have to travel too far. But if a child is being referred for long-term suspension, so any suspension from their school um, more than 10 days, then we can represent them in those matters, those appeals as well. Um, the goal of our clinic is to, of course, provide um, children with ways to learn from their mistakes other than being incarcerated or in custody. Um, of course, we use very different terminology in juvenile um, delinquency court than what is used in adult court, but I'll just use all those adult terms today just because I know that's what people are familiar with. Um, but we wanna help kids learn how learn from their mistakes in, in other ways than, than being a part of the court system. And so we want to, we assist them with getting services that they need, of course, the goal of juvenile court is a more, it takes a more holistic approach um, to working with the children than what you see in adult court. Of course, adult court is more about um, the, the kids, I mean, uh, the person's being punished for what they've done, as opposed to in, in juvenile court, it's about what services does this child need. Um, and they're not even considered to be convicted of any crimes or anything like that. They're considered to be adjudicated as a delinquent if they are, if they do find themselves um, adjudicated in that way. So that is our goal. Um, we, <laughs> we get lots of cases, um, various cases, just like what Dr. Taylor just talked about. Of course, we have a different um, kind of pre, um, stage here in Durham right now because of the um, Durham District Attorney's Office takes a very different approach on things, especially when it comes to children. And we are getting the benefit of that in Durham right now, which I'm grateful for. Um, there are not a lot of um, school-based offenses that are coming through Durham County um, Juvenile Court. There are not a lot of like low, like misdemeanor marijuana charges and different things like that. Not a lot of those are coming through um, juvenile court right now, but those are the kind of cases that we handle. Um, I actually have my, my students, we also partner the clinic um, as a clinic, we partner with a local middle school, with um, James E. Shepard Middle School, who is named after our university founder. 
which is right here in our community, not even five minutes away from um, the law school. And so we partnered with them. They have a forensics and law class. And we push typically, we haven't um, since COVID has taken over everything, but typically we push into their um, forensics and law class and help teach those children that are taking that class about mock trial and trial skills and different things like that. And we are involved in lots of other community um, collaborations and different things like that. So the students are not just getting the advocacy with the children in the courtroom, but they're also learning ways to advocate and work with the children outside of the courtroom. Now, you mentioned uh, at some point uh, that uh, you deal with uh, children between 6 and 17, uh, 17 being the, uh, the new age in North Carolina since, uh, was it 2018? 2019, December 2019. 1 of 2019. Yes, sir. The, uh, the change. But how frequent is it that uh, children in the six to 10 year old range will end up in the uh, juvenile uh, system. And when they do, uh, what typically are the kinds of uh, offenses that, uh, that they are involved in or the level of delinquency, I should say, uh, that, uh, that they are engaged in? That is a wonderful question. That is one that is a very hot topic and question right now and it, it has been and always will be until we get the age raised up so when we got the benefit of raise the age on the the maximum age we also wanted to have the minimum age raised but of course we had to piecemeal it and you know get get what we could get at that time so i am grateful for raise the age on the on the other end but you're right we don't have i would say that it's not as frequent that you see children six to ten years old but you do see them um, I just had a discussion with another young lady um, just yesterday, just this week, um, that where I was telling her about it, I've had two uh, two cases that come to mind to me right out, out the gate are I had two nine-year-olds that were in, in juvenile delinquency cases. And the types of cases that they were, one was a sex offense between minors, which is one of those situations where it's two kids that are exploring their bodies and they're exploring it with each other. And they didn't realize that this is not something that, that that this is something that could get them involved in juvenile delinquency court. And so uh, we had a nine year old and then we had another kid that was nine years old that was charged with assault on a government official, if you can believe that. And I was very upset when we received that particular case because it was a transfer case out of another county. And I was just flabbergasted at how that kid even got through the juvenile system because he was the epitome of a kid that did not understand anything. Um, and that's what you see, Professor Joyner, when you see the six to 10, especially, they don't, it's a competent, it's a major competency issue. It's a competency issue anyway in juvenile court with any kid, but especially with those younger kids, because they don't understand anything. And as you know, one of the things that we need, we look for is that the, our client has, is to assist us in their representation. And so a part of that initial conversation that we have and the first things that we want the client to understand is what's the judge's role, what's the lawyer's role, what the DA's role is and how they even got here, what this charge mean, what all these elements are. They have no clue what any of that means. And this particular nine-year-old that I was talking about was charged, like I said, with assault on a government official, which as you know, is would be a felony, could be a felony in adult court charged with that and we find out that he has an IEP and actually suffers from autism 
no way this kid should have been in juvenile court. And it was a school-based offense where a teacher was saying that he hit her when she was trying to control him, which we all know if you know anything about autism or kids at that age, that's a typical thing that could just happen. And so those kids, um, you know, the only good thing that can come out of the any of these cases, and especially with the younger ones, is that they will get services. They will get, you know, be a part of being a part of the system will have some other folks outside of their house and their family and their parents that will get them services that they may need and things like that. But other than that, it is not a good place for any kids, but especially the six to 10 year olds. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And uh, we are talking about uh, juvenile justice uh, tonight. Uh, in many uh, instances, people talk about juvenile injustice. Uh, as uh, really the, the focus of the discussion. But we have Dr. Lorraine Taylor, who is the executive director of the uh, NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute, and uh, Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, who is a uh, clinical law professor at the NCCU uh, School of Law. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation uh, with them. Want you to uh, stay with us as we take our break right now, and we will be uh, right back. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Many of the most serious human rights violations in the U.S. occur in the realm of criminal justice. The criminal justice system is continuously plagued with injustices like racial disparities, hate, and brutality. One area emphasized by many throughout the United States is the Department of Public Security. Studies show that about one in every 1,000 black men can expect to be killed by the police. The risk of being killed by police peaks between the ages of 20 and 35 years old for men and women and for all racial and ethnic groups. Black, American Indian, and Alaska Native, and Latino women and men are significantly more likely than white women and men to be killed by police. Due to the recent and highly publicized cruelty against citizens of the nation by law enforcement, protesters nationwide are demanding change. Calling to defund the police mean different things to different people. However, at the center of many movements is a desire for reform with an organization that vows to protect the people, prevent crime, and reduce the fear of crime. The opportunity for the people to reimagine what policing looks like with increased presence of law enforcement in communities has been heavily sought after for many years, but with no effect. For example, on February 15, North Carolina State Senators filed Senate Bill 100 legislation that will restrict state funding for local governments and reduce funding for local police departments. The bill sponsors announced at a press conference that the bill is a direct response to efforts in communities to defund the police. More information is at aclu.org, npr.org, and pnas.org. Virtual justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks, 
Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and thank you for uh, staying with us as we continue our discussion on uh, juvenile justice. Uh, we have uh, as our guest tonight, uh, Dr. Lorraine Taylor, who is the Executive Director of the uh, NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute, and uh, Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, who is a clinical uh, law professor at uh, the NCCU School of Law and is the uh, supervising attorney of the uh, law school's uh, juvenile law clinic. When we, when we took our break, uh, we were talking about the uh, frequency that uh, young children, uh, typically between the ages of uh, 6 and 10 or 6 and 12, uh, most of them without the capacity to understand uh, what uh, the uh, significance of their conduct might be and how they end up in the, um, in the juvenile justice uh, system. Uh, Dr. Taylor uh, has uh, been engaged in uh, uh, research uh, of these uh, topics and in the, in the development of policy in this regard. So uh, Dr. Taylor, what has been your, your findings uh, with respect to the frequency of the younger uh, age range uh, that, end, that will end them up in the juvenile process. Well, I just, I have to underscore the points that Professor Hairston Mitchell just made in terms of this not being a very common experience in our state, but when it happens, it is just horrific. And um, my my training, my my doctoral degree is actually in developmental psychology. Mm -hmm. So I bring that perspective to the work that I do at the Juvenile Justice Institute. And I can't tell you how many times in a given day I struggle with how much of a divide there is between what we know about child and adolescent development and how we function in the criminal justice system. There's just this divide there that makes no sense to me. And I think the fact that the minimum age question is now on the table is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, it only took 100 years for us to, to raise the, the minimum age to um, for, for getting kids out of the adult court. I'm just hoping it doesn't take another 100 years for us to raise the, the minimum age. Um, North Carolina, I think um, Professor Harrison Mitchell mentioned is the only state that has the minimum age of, of juvenile jurisdiction at six, age six. Um, and if that's not enough to blow your mind, one of the things that I learned in doing some research on this topic is that there are several states, um, I think 28, if I remember correctly, that don't have a minimum age. So there isn't an official policy on minimum age in 28 states. Um, there is a very interesting report that I would definitely recommend, and I can provide um, links to this if, if folks are interested. The National Juvenile Justice Network, NJJN, um, is a, an organization out of Washington, D.C. that has some strong ties to North Carolina. They issued a report recently that focused on this issue of raising the minimum age. And they have data in that report for all of the states and a summary of some of the, the major issues and, and challenges around um, the, the problems with that. I'm happy to say, I think one um, positive note, um, North Carolina has 
a task force on racial equity in criminal justice that I believe just wrapped up their work um, last December. And they issued a report that outlines a number of specific strategies and um, directions for helping to reduce racial inequities in the system. And um, Representative Marsha Moray, who many of us have known over the years, has been um, a strong advocate for raising this, this minimum age in North Carolina. And one of the recommendations in that task force is indeed to raise the minimum age in North Carolina from six to 12. Um, and so we'll see what happens next. Um, the final report from the task force, I believe, is available online. Um, and like I said, I was happy to see that raising the minimum age was addressed in that report. And well, yeah, the in, 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 in light, and, and I'm sorry, April, I'm, I'm, I'm talking over you there. Uh, but I, I want to get this question uh, in uh, with uh, Dr. Uh, Taylor. You, you, you talked about your, your study. Uh, for your uh, dissertation, uh, and I'm, I'm going to raise this question with both of you. What is the impact on the children of being caught up in this uh, in this system? I just saw uh, just a day or so ago where a nine-year-old uh, was uh, handcuffed uh, by the police and placed in the uh, back of a police uh, squad car because uh, she was disbehaving uh, in, in, in school. So what is the impact of, uh, of being uh, caught up by the police or any other uh, agent of the uh, criminal justice uh, process uh, on those uh, children who are uh, impacted? So the, the first thing, a few things come out, come to mind for me. Um, one, the anxiety that the child may experience or is very high, the likelihood of that. Um, they are now, their viewpoint of police officers, people of authority, the court system is being shaped if it hadn't already been shaped in some way. Um, so they have this negative viewpoint of all of those persons and that entity um, it could result in if they are already experiencing some kind of like mental disorders or learning disabilities or any of those things, it could exacerbate all of those things. Other exterior things would be if they're involved, and this is for any kid, if they're involved in the juvenile delinquency court system and they're, say, charged or, or adjudicated of a felony, one, their school has to be notified. So but just by virtue of the school being notified, that could place a stigma on them, whether they whether it's intended or not, because if it's especially if it's an offense that was referred from the school, one day already know about it. And then if it's not, then they've been notified. But then the school is now looking at this kid as a problem child if they hadn't already. And so they may be targeted even more. And I won't even go that because I that will get me on another soapbox about us not needing school resource officers and people in the school um, like that and us needing more social workers um, instead. So you have that. Then if you have a kid that is adjudicated of a felony, then they, if they're participating, like I said, this is for any age range, if they're participating in certain sports or in sports, they can't participate in the sports anymore. And aside from school, 
if they're adjudicated of certain offenses, it could affect their housing. So I've had a kid that has been trespassed from their home, you know, from the area that they're living in, or because of the type of offense that they've been charged with or adjudicated of, they can't live in that public housing, for instance. And so they either have to move away from their parents or their family, the only home that they've known, be separated from them, which we all know could add on even more um, issues for that child, or their entire family has to move, which we know that that's, that's not possible for a lot of people. Neither one of those scenarios. So those are the things that kind of just first, you know, jumps out for me of the things that that has the effect that it has on the kid. But the biggest things that I would say for the kid themselves is just all those social, emotional things that negative effects that it has on the child. And I would I would just add to what Professor Harrison Mitchell described. I mean, you don't need to be a child developmentalist to understand this. It's terrible. It's life altering and heartbreaking. And we as a society, we as a community shouldn't do that to children, particularly when we are aware of the challenges that are faced by some of our young people. We have children with disabilities. Um, There's been some research showing that black children with developmental disabilities are especially unlikely to get help they are especially unlikely to receive the federally mandated services they are supposed to receive. Um, There is some legal action underway right now, at least as um, recently as the um, current, the recent past administration trying to block the access of um, services for children that have disabilities. Um, That's been one of the ongoing debates. We know from research that issues like autism, issues like emotional and other developmental delays are sometimes manifest in behavioral problems, acting out, hitting, fighting, being aggressive. We know that those things are not unlikely um, for children that have certain developmental disabilities, but yet that's not really factored into how we treat children that are now being accused of of these types of crimes. Um, There has been a lot of research on ACEs. ACEs is one of those kind of popular terms that we hear about all the time. Um, Adverse childhood experiences, things like um, death of a parent, um, unstable housing conditions, witnessing a violent act or crime, Um, having a medical diagnosis. You know, there's a whole laundry list of these ACEs. We know that Black children in America are especially likely as a group to have high ACEs, high scores on ACEs measures. How does that connect to their experience with the criminal or juvenile justice system? Again, there's that gap there. It's like we have this knowledge and understanding, but yet for whatever reason, we've just been slow to apply what we know to uh, across these these systems. Yeah, Irv, I'm glad you were you got your question in because mine is related and and the statements from Professor Harrison Mitchell and Dr. Taylor just kind of buttress um, my question, which is, you know, as a community and as a society, uh, and Dr. Taylor, you mentioned we don't have to be developmental psychologists to see the harm that exists. And 
as you were talking about, um, you know, childhood experiences, I, you know, I'm reflecting back on pivotal experiences that happened in my life. And fortunately, most of those are very positive, but I remember them. And, and if I had been introduced to the criminal justice system at an early age, there's no doubt in my mind that my trajectory would have been, you know, completely different. And so as a, as a concerned citizen, as a member of, of the African-American community in particular, uh, and just a member of the wider society, what advice do you have to folks who want to try and make sure that uh, policy decisions are being made um, post haste, as opposed to, you know, like you were saying, hopefully it won't take another hundred years before we raise the minimum age. What can we do to help push the policy agenda and see real concrete changes as soon as possible? I think that's a, a great question, and I, I would recommend a, a number of things. I know we have limited time here, um, but one, one of the things I would recommend is to really look for opportunities to express concern and express the fact that we are not just going to roll over and let these things continue to happen to our children. And there are a number of organizations, a number of initiatives that exist that are focusing on these types of, of matters, particularly around racial equity issues. Because unfortunately, as we know, when we talk about the juvenile justice system or the, the broader criminal justice system, it is linked with our understanding of being a black person in America. So there are a number of organizations and agencies and initiatives that are working in this arena. Um, it's fortunate to have um, a number of different local organizations that are very active and, and vocal on this front. Um, and so connect types of organizations, I, I think is a good strategy. Um, Asking our elected officials and other people in um, positions of government to focus on these things. Yes. I mentioned the, um, the task force, the North Carolina task force on um, racial equity in criminal justice. There is a list of recommendations and we need to hold our elected officials responsible for implementing these things. And so we can do that in a number of different ways. Um, I think speaking out and addressing and, and informing people about these outrageous um, incidents that occur is another thing that we can do. So I think there are a number of different ways that we can be active in, in trying to move the needle forward. I would add to that one other thing, which would be as a community person, wherever you are, wherever you work, whatever organizations, whatever events you participate in, you not be part of the problem or not be a part of that overall system that is trying to capture our children in this way. For instance, if you work at the school and you're a teacher, then you're not one of those teachers that just because you all have a school policy that says you automatically refer this kid to the principal for certain things that you, you for lack of a better way of saying it, you book up against that policy and that system and you speak up against it and you don't, you know, send the kids in that way or you, you know, advocate for other school-based programming or other ways to deal with those issues in the school. Or if you're out at a event and something takes place 
and someone wants to call the police just because they don't know of any other way, they can't come up with any other way to deal with what they believe is some criminal behavior that they should capture with this child, then you speak up and say, no, let's figure out a, a different way or let's see if this kid has this going on or let's talk with the kid. You know what I mean? Just be, be one of those persons that is not afraid to stand up for our children in that way, just as a community person. Mm-hmm. And Professor Harrison Mitchell, you mentioned the current uh, district attorney's office approach to dealing with juvenile justice matters. And this kind of leads into the discussion about school to prison pipelines. And can you talk about, you know, when people say school to prison pipeline, what are, what are they talking about? And why it's so important that the district attorney, the DA's office, has decided to um, be very mindful about how to deal with cases that come out of the school system and the school interactions. The school to prison pipeline is this very real concept or reality that takes place in which a child in the school is being targeted and they are being referred to um, the juvenile justice or juvenile court or juvenile delinquency um, because of some kind of behavior that takes place in school. And so they kind of fast track into this whole process that everything they do kind of pushes them further and further along in that process of going to prison. So starting with the juvenile delinquency system, then moving on up to the adult system and ultimately going to prison. And it's like a fast track line to there. And so what our district attorney here in Durham, I have to give her this little shout out to Tana DeBerry is doing is that she took a very real and positive stance against that and the way she does it is she does not if even if a school sends certain kinds of offenses to the district attorney's office and hope to adjudicate a child for that they won't go further with it the da's office says we're not prosecuting those kinds of cases and so they cutting it off at the head and not allowing the child to even be on that path or at least not being a part of them continuing on that path and so the schools here in durham have gotten the the message that they're not prosecuting them. There's no point of us sending them. So now they're having to figure out ways to deal with this behavior in their schools in some other way. Yeah, and that that last point that you made, which is you got to figure out a better way to deal with these systems. And when we think about schools, I know my school experience, primary school, junior high school, high school was a, a relatively safe place, except for, you know, dealing with, you know, the, the way kids behave. But I but it should be a place where students have an opportunity to grow and develop, to, to make mistakes in a safe place and to force the school system to figure out a better way, particularly when those that are subject to more harsher discipline, of yep. course, are students of, of color. Absolutely. Uh, so you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the state of juvenile justice in North Carolina. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dr. Lorraine Taylor. She is the executive director of the NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute or JJI and Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, who is a clinical law professor at NCCU School of Law and also the supervising attorney of the NCCU Law Juvenile Law Clinic. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we will be right back. We hope you stay with us. 
Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, clinical law professor at NCCU School of Law and supervising attorney of the Juvenile Law Clinic. And also Dr. Lorraine Taylor. She is the executive director of the NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute. So right before the break, uh, Professor Harrison Mitchell, you were talking about the shift that the DA's office has taken in dealing with uh, issues that arise out of school systems, issues that might in the past have led to interaction and involvement in the criminal justice system. Uh, I wanted to ask you both for suggestions that you can provide the community and community members about what we can do to keep juveniles safe, so to help them stay on the right path. Uh, And Dr. Taylor, you mentioned ACEs. And so when we think about um, circumstances that young people find themselves in, um, and, and we know that life is can be incredibly difficult. And young people, just like older people, we all make mistakes. What advice can you give to friends and family members of young people who might find themselves engaging in behavior that will ultimately lead to involvement in the criminal justice system unless they are diverted in some way? What resources can we offer for parents and and aunties and uncles and uh, friends and family members of these young people? That is a very complex question. And there's not, I would argue, there's not just one magic formula that we can look to to help resolve the issues that plague our society. I think we can influence what happens in our own households to a large extent. And so simple things like having routines for your young people, having a bedtime, having a time to wake up, um, understanding that routines are absolutely critical for kids to have a sense of their world, to have a sense of their day. And those routines, especially for younger kids, can go a long way to promoting a sense of safety and health and, and positivity. So routines include things like Meal times, and it doesn't have to be everybody sitting around at the table holding hands, you know, and all of that. If you can do that, great. 
But if you come home late from work, you sit down for 20 minutes with your kid and have a meal, for example. Simple things like that can go a long way. I think parents need to draw a line between mm-hmm. place that's happening in the world, whether you know it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in the media or whatever, and what happens in your household. And making sure that you're working to ensure a peaceful, harmonious, positive household environment is something that you can do. That might mean turning off the TV and playing some music. I have, I've got a six, uh, almost 16-year-old son, and he was telling me the other day he had never heard of some uh, very important R&B artists in my life, and it broke my heart. So sitting down with your kids and talking with them about these important pieces of our culture, again, that's something you can do within your household. That's not going to stop the noise and the craziness that's happening in the world, but it promotes a sense of connection and safety and and balance within your kids that can carry them um, through some of the challenges that are happening in the world. So I would um, kind of, and I agree with everything Dr. Taylor said, and I would come from a kind of a different angle with that and say that hopefully there are parents and aunties and uncles and folks, grandparents and folks that are listening to this um, broadcast and getting information and or they are participating in school programs or community programs that give them information about various things. So giving them information, for instance, um, on what types of activities or behavior could result in a, their child getting into juvenile delinquency court. And so that's one of the things that um, one of the you know, one of the things that we do, we know is not taking place often. So as a clinic, um, as the supervising attorney for the clinic, we actually put on some of these kinds of programs. So we go into the elementary schools and the middle schools and high schools, and we have programs like, for instance, um, we have a whole list of these little text message emojis and different little things that we teach parents about what all these things mean. Like what we may see is just a picture of, um, say, eggplant. It actually means something different when the kid is sending it out on text messaging. So the parents are empowered and know and educated about this different um, stuff. And then encouraging parents to participate more at the schools and be involved in their kids' school activities and their education. And so the people at the school will know that they are not going to be able to just railroad this particular kid because this parent is going to come up here and advocate for their child. And if you do um, try to put them, you know, recommend them for long-term suspension or refer them for um, juvenile delinquency court, you're, it's not going to happen easily. Like this parent is going to come in and not, you know, be irate or crazy or anything like that, but they're going to advocate for their child. And I know that just like what Dr. Taylor said, there's lots of things that are out of control, out, out of the parent's control. Like for instance, we have a lot of parents that are, are having a, um, operating a single parent household. So they may not have all the time, like what Dr. Taylor talked about, where they are able to sit down with their kid for 20 minutes. They may be relying on their 16-year-old to work with their six-year-old with their homework and different things like that because they have to work so much to take care of the family. Um, Or they're working so much that they can't go up to the school when something is taking place or different things like that. So those are things, but, you know, hopefully we can 
you know, encourage parents to participate as much as they possibly can so that they are educated and feel empowered and know that they're not alone, that there are people out here that we are wanting to help them and, you know, go and want to just get back to that whole, it takes a village to raise your child and get back to that village approach and let them be confident that they can rely on us to look after their child when they're not able to. Well, you know, parenting is a, a very a difficult job, mm-hmm. uh, responsibility uh, and discipline that uh, a person uh, has. And uh, probably uh, it's a better situation when they are persons uh, involved uh, in that rather than just uh, an individual person. But have you seen, and I don't know what the research will show, and it may be too soon for there to be results from research uh, now, but the impact that the uh, pandemic uh, has had on uh, families, uh, particularly the the children, and whether the uh, forced uh, isolation of families uh, together uh, if that has uh, improved the situation or exacerbated uh, the uh, problems and issues that uh, families uh, face uh, today that might impact them ending up in the system? Well, I, I would say that this is exacerbated more than it's improved. Um, and the way it's exacerbated just in general, um, not just with children, but in general, the numbers of domestic violence has increased but the numbers of reports of domestic violence has gone down. And that's because victims of domestic violence are afraid. They don't, they aren't able to report it. They don't have as much outside um, contact with folks to be able to report what's happening to them. And then when you have a child that's suffering in those ways, they definitely have less opportunity to let someone know, because of course, if a child is experiencing any of this kind of negativity in their home, a lot of times the folks at the school, when they go into the school is when they, the folks at the school find out, then that's when it's reported. But if they're not actually going into the school, that's not happening. So it's, that's exacerbated. Um, you have a lot of kids that are, some kids are doing better with the home schooling um, because they, you know, that just learning in that way, in that individualized way is better. But most children are not doing as well being at home because they don't have the, the guidance from a teacher like they need. And you have a lot, like I said before, you have far more single parent households or households in which the parents have to go to work and they're outside of their home and they're not able to be there with their children and kind of monitor what's going on with their schooling and different things like that. Um, and so then you have those and on top of that, you have a kid that has an IEP or individualized education plan or those disabilities and so they're not getting the services that they need. And so all of those things are being exacerbated. Um, so I would say the one thing that is probably a positive thing that has come out is that a lot more parents have recognized how great teachers are <laughs> and how much credit teachers really should be given. Um, and, and that the teachers are do really play a major part in helping them raise their children. Um, and educating their children and that they have such a tough job and that they should be given more credit. So that's one positive that has come out. And so the parents are seeing, okay, now I do really need to invest more in my own child's education. I can tell you for me, for instance, 
I was, I consider myself to be very active in my children's education and I'm at their school all the time, but I was going for different things and I wasn't actually in their classroom. And now being able to be at home with them a lot of times and I can actually hear, oh, that's how they learn and that's how they communicate it. This is the best way they're learning style and like all of, I've learned all of these different things about my kid. And these are kids that don't even have a lot of these other kind of concerns and things that are going on. So I see that as a positive thing. And I think that's that's one of the positives that have come out. I'm sure Dr. Taylor has some other research, but those are the kind of things that I'm seeing, you know, just with the children that we, you know, we represent and just other children that I've been involved with. I, I think I, I agree 100%. And to answer the question, you know, what does the research show? You're, you're right in terms of it still being fairly early. Um, people are still immersed in this pandemic right now. But, I, you know, I, I'm not a betting woman, but if, but if I were, I would put my money on there being some really difficult days ahead once our kids are back in school, once people are returning to the work, the workplace, I don't think we fully understand all of the negative consequences that this pandemic is going to have. Um, that will emerge in the data in the coming months and years. One of the things that I've learned, um, similar to, to what um, Professor Harrison Mitchell was just remarking, because my high schooler is doing school from home, I'm exposed to what that's like. And one of the new phenomenon that I think will emerge is that we have a lot of children that are participating in online education, but are invisible. They're not on camera, they're not responding, they're not talking to the teachers. For our older youth, you can find ways to be disengaged while also being online. Some of our youth are very good at that. <laughs> I'm not going to name any names here, but it really are. Kids are learning to behave in ways that may not support their long-term success by virtue of being at home and being stuck at home and having to do online education. I think that's going to be harm, especially harmful for some of our kids. Um, I don't think that being home and being isolated is resulting in any um, real broad positive impacts on family dynamics. Um, families are taking it day by day and adjusting. I think you will have some kids who may benefit by, you know, kids who may have struggled in the school context before who might do better at home, but I just don't think there are going to be you know, whole, wholesale positive outcomes on the horizon post-pandemic. One of the other things that I, I, I want to hear is that this pandemic has resulted in, what, over 500,000 deaths? Yes. That is a major trauma for so many of our families. And if we're already talking about families that were dealing with other issues, this new trauma, I think, is going to have an impact that we won't fully understand until later. If a relative, if your mom or dad or grandma or someone that's close to you has died because of this pandemic, because of this um, disease, that is, you know, it's difficult for kids to just bounce back from that. So I just think we're going to have more trauma, more negative outcomes um, on the horizon. And Dr. Taylor, as you were talking, I was thinking about the 
um, the physical health of our young people and of course the emotional health, which you uh, mentioned. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's hard to imagine that uh, there won't be repercussions that we can't even imagine at this point and that as a, as a community, we really do have to stay vigilant. Um, and I think we can't underscore enough how racial disparities play out. So even just with COVID uh, and, you know, we see in terms of those that are being infected and uh, those who are dying and, and the availability of the vaccine, that all of this reveals itself in a way that demonstrates racial disparities. And, and if, we, if we're not really observant when things get back to whatever normal is going to look like and students are back in the school full time, uh, that we've got to make sure that we pay attention to these difficult days ahead. Absolutely. Exactly. So, and if kids act out in school when they get back, you know, the thing is not to have them end up needing Dorothy's services. We have to be proactive in how we are going to strategize around helping kids that are coming back to school with, with new challenges on top of the old challenges, but right. some very, in very specific new challenges. Yeah, we got to give them an adjustment period, a readjustment period, just like what you have with two parents, two different households and a kid have to go in between the two parents. And if one has, has a way of doing things and then you got to get them readjusted, mm -hmm. you know, you got to give them some grace period for sure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we can't thank the two of you enough for such an insightful and engaging discussion. Uh, we have with us here in the studio, Dr. Lorraine Taylor. She is the executive director of the NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute and Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, clinical law professor at NCCU School of Law and supervising attorney of the Juvenile Law Clinic. As always, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And we are happy to announce that you can also find this show in podcast form. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, Stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.